Hey guys, my name is Alex, and you're listening to the Thousand Movie Project Podcast. Listening more specifically to another account, another step in BookTube's nonfiction November. This is obviously not a video on YouTube, which is where BookTube exists. Nonetheless, I'm participating spiritually in uh, the general practice of trying to focus on all the nonfiction everyone has accumulated in their shelves. And yesterday, as I mentioned earlier, I've lately been reading for the first time the New Testament. I've been reading the Norton Critical Edition of the King James Version of the New Testament. I've never read the Gospels straight through, and uh, I'm done with them. I haven't read what they call the Pauline section, which is like Deuteronomy and Corinthians, but I've read the major Gospels, and uh, I'm after doing that, before going into the Pauline section, I decided to look at some of the essays in the back of the book. There's a section called exegesis, and exegesis means like a deep literary study. I think it means specifically like a deep exploration of some kind of religious text. And the exegeses are divided into two sections. There's the pre-critical, which is like seven, uh, like a thousand years and older writings about the New Testament, commentaries about it. And then there is the critical period. And the crit the essays in the critical period begin in around the, the mid-1600s. And I read three pieces, and the first one, it was fascinating because it was, it's by, it's translated, I believe the author was French, and the prose was fairly modern. And he's basically saying in the essay, like, okay, obviously I'm not publishing this, I would get in way too much trouble, but I'm circulating this among friends, and I just have to vent about how these books in the New Testament, these Gospels, don't line up. And then very systematically, um, in an argumentative, it's kind of, the tone is heated. It's an argumentative, but, you know, clear-headed breakdown of how the book of Matthew, for instance, contradicts the book of Luke, and the book of John contradicts the book of Matthew. Granted, having basically, I never, didn't have a religious upbringing, I never sort of casually dipped a toe into the waters of Christianity to kind of read the text and the commentary and get a sense of the lingo. Cannot tell one denomination from another. But it's kind of, what the vibe I'm getting now, having read these three essays, is that reading the New Testament is kind of like, a few years ago, I had zero interest in watching um, the return, not the return, fuck, The Last Jedi. That was the Ryan Johnson Star Wars movie. And then I think just after that or just before it was Rogue One. Didn't want to see either of those movies, but it went early. Like on the day that those movies opened, I saw them at like 9 a.m. screenings just so that I could see the movie without having heard the spoilers and so that I could then participate in the online conversation. Or not even so much participate, mainly just so I could consume other people's participation. So that I could be a knowing observer of the content of, you know, film enthusiasts that I like on YouTube. It is this weird relationship to have a greater a greater affection for the critical response to a work of art, greater interest in that response than you have in the work of art. But having just devoted like a few consecutive mornings, probably like 90 minutes of reading for eight consecutive mornings, that's all it takes to read all the Gospels. And I had a revelation like this, no pun intended, uh, a little over a year ago when I read a bunch of Shakespeare. 
I have probably mentioned on this podcast because I love this little detail for some reason. The average literate American adult reads about 30 pages an hour if they sit down and really focus. And the average American novel is about 300 pages. So it takes the average American about 10 hours to read the average American novel. And for years and years, I put off, re until my 30s, I put off reading Shakespeare because I was like, that shit is difficult. If it's normally supposed to take you 10 hours to read a book of Shakespeare, it's gonna take me 20, because I'm not that smart. But what I forgot, what I totally overlooked, is the fact that Shakespeare's plays are not novels. They're plays. These things were supposed to be performed in the span of like three hours and performed in three hours like with people speaking the roles so if you're reading it in your mind you're reading it at a quicker rate than anyone can speak so if it's supposed to be if this whole play is supposed to be performed in three hours you can probably read the whole thing in two because the language is going to be slow normal if it was a modern play i'd say you could read the whole thing in 90 minutes but again the the language will slow you down you'll have to google things or jump down to the footnotes. And yeah, that was revelatory to realize, like I got a bunch of audiobooks to help me, and so I would read along with BBC performances of King Lear and Henry IV, Hamlet, Romeo and Juliet, Othello, Macbeth, The Tempest. And it was my first exposure to most of those plays, and I had a great time with it. Did I understand everything? Not a, no, not a, not by a long shot. But it took, like, each one took, you know, three hours max, and they were legitimately enjoyable. It wasn't just like, okay, I, I spent three hours reading a Shakespeare play or two hours reading a Shakespeare play, and then I feel like the moral cleansing that you're supposed to feel after a run or eating carrots. I didn't just feel, in other words, like I was doing it for my own good. I legitimately enjoyed myself, but to be honest, the, like, the best part of it is that it opened up to me a world of, yeah, I know how this sounds, Shakespearean criticism. <laughs> There's a part in um, in Ulysses by James Joyce where one of the main characters, Stephen Dedalus, is basically he has this theory where he uses algebra to illustrate how Hamlet is his own father, something like that, or his father is Shakespeare, or that Hamlet is Shakespeare's father. And it's actually like a pretty compelling theory once he gets around to explaining it. But more memorable than his theory is someone saying to Stephen, like, Hamlet is where unsound minds go in order like it's a playground for unsound minds because as the shakespeare scholar harold bloom said you can't look at a single shakespearean play and say this is an anarchist play or anti-semitic play or feminist play nor can you say oh this one is about money or this one is about love or about power but he says the the best of the plays are so multifaceted that if you feed an idea into the play, your idea will not illuminate the play, but the play will illuminate the idea. You can push any idea you want to into Shakespeare, and it will not necessarily light up the play, but the play will light up the idea. Let's say the, the power of mind, the power of consciousness, the power of sheer stuff of being in him um, is beyond parallel. And if it's beyond parallel, then in some sense it's beyond explanation. What do we know about Shakespeare? Um, he seems to have been very lustful towards both men and women. You can tell from the plays that he greatly preferred drinking to eating and that he hated lawyers. Twisty, tanglesome, linguistic shit going on in the world of Shakespearean criticism. And it's true. Weird people with weird ideas go to Shakespeare to vent and to find weird... I don't know. They find a kinship with that crazy, weird, ambiguous language. 
kind of like that documentary from a few years ago. I think it's called Room 237, whichever number Kubrick and his dad adaptation of The Shining dad 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 adaptation of the shining gave to the room where the dead woman is and that it's a documentary it's just like footage from the shining overlaid with audio of various film scholars opining theorizing about what Kubrick was trying to convey and there's no authorial voice in the documentary to say that this one's a nut and this one is you know spot on basically they're all a little crazy basically they're all projecting their own fascinations their own hang-ups their own insecurities onto this very strange compelling ambiguous piece of art and frankly I don't I don't like Kubrick's shining but I love that documentary anyways the same thing is going on here with this Norton critical edition of the New Testament. I did enjoy reading the New Testament, but I didn't, it's not like, it's not something that like if I, if Christianity had never happened and I found this moldering manuscript on some library floor, I don't think I would be, I would have been particularly enchanted by it or, or would have finished it. But now it, it illuminates the things that I put into it. If I use it as like a lens through which to look at different works of art or different things in the culture, it, it tends to illuminate my view of those things. And something pretty morbid was illuminated yesterday as I was reading through the exegeses, and it's because the third essay that I, that I, the one that I stopped at, was written by Friedrich Nietzsche, or Nietzsche, or Nietzsche. Now his name in German would normally be pronounced Friedrich Nietzsche. A 19th century philosopher who was German, I think? Now his name in German would normally be pronounced Friedrich Nietzsche. I've never actually tried to read anything by Nietzsche, even at, well after college. I've just always been of the mind that it's going to be super complicated. I'm not going to be able to follow his philosophizing. So I'm not really familiar with his work. I don't really know anything about him. But so I'm reading this excerpt. It's like three excerpts from an essay that Nietzsche wrote about the New Testament. And there is an introduction by the Norton Critical Edition to these excerpts, but it's a very objective. It's being very scholarly, it's just presenting the material, and you are supposed to make of it what you will. And so I'm reading the, the this, this Nietzsche excerpt, and Nietzsche is saying something like, Christianity is terrible, it's a blight on civilization, it's a poison, it's a poison, and you know what, it is just so typical of Jews to have, to have created this. And when I read that, that wasn't the exact wording, it was, I'm paraphrasing, but when I read it, my first reaction was like a sense of pause, where I was thinking, I didn't read that correctly. Let me read that again. And so I read it again and I was like, is he an anti-Semite? So I picked up my phone and I Googled like, was Nietzsche an anti-Semite? And what it generates is a slew of articles that say things like Nietzsche and the Jews, how he was misunderstood. And uh, Nietzsche was uh, against a lot of things, but not the Jewish people. I saw all these articles written by dudes saying, you don't understand Nietzsche, he wasn't an anti-Semite, that's what it took for me to be like, he was definitely an anti-Semite, 100%. Or that at least is my first impression. If someone's out there writing a listicle called, hey, nine reasons why my dad is not an anti-Semite, you can probably ascertain without reading the piece that this person's father is a virulent anti-Semite. I, I read the next few pages of the essay. I didn't really glean anything interesting. I was still preoccupied with like, oh, I didn't know anything about him. And I would have thought in all of the years that people have been mentioning Nietzsche to me, whether in essays or in conversations at college, someone might have mentioned, oh, you know what else is significant about him? But what's even more striking than that, once I walked away from the essay, is that when I read that very plain spoken condemnation of Jewish people, like that blanket 
anti-Semitic sentiment, I paused and I and I questioned whether I understood it. Now, if the if that passage had been saying the same thing about black people or Asian people or Hispanics, right away I would have been like, oh, he's a bigot. Okay, and, and it would have clicked. I would have gotten it. But for some reason, in the few in the few times that I feel like I've confronted legit, explicit anti-Semitism, there's some part of me that is like a, it's grinning confusion, where I'm like, oh, nah. And I was wondering why that is. Why am I so seemingly like paralyzed in trying to process anti-Semitism when I see it? And I think it's partly, partly to do with the fact that most of the bigoted speech I think I've ever heard, whether it's manifesting, racism, xenophobia, homophobia, transphobia, ageism, whatever, the bigot in question tends to use like explicitly dehumanizing language, language about savagery or primitivism, the criminality of that group of people, or the sexual deviancy of that group. The typical bigot, when discussing the subject of their hatred, is usually speaking of them in a language that nobody would find flattering, a language that is overtly hostile. And on the other hand, it seems, from the bits of anti-Semitic sentiment that I've encountered, you see the anger on their face, or the hatred, they're visibly sneering, but they're speaking about people who they think are smarter than themselves, better organized, better connected, uh, more capable, with, a, with stronger communities and traditions that have been passed down thousands of years. It seems, in other words, like a lot of anti-Semitic rhetoric is weirdly, subtly projecting the qualities of community and fortitude and ingenuity that the anti-Semite themselves is lacking, yearns for. And yeah, this isn't a particularly revelatory thing. Sorry for the noise of my refrigerator starting to churn. I was, I was just struck and a little concerned by my own hesitation in, a, in calling that particular spade a spade. But then at the same time, I was like, maybe it's actually the responsible thing. Like if you hear something that sounds anti-Semitic, make sure that you heard what you think you heard or read what you think you read before you you know, fix someone with that label. But also, eh, maybe not. Like, if they're saying in such explicit language as Nietzsche is saying in this, um, essay, what, you know, what they feel. Like, take it for what it is and act accordingly. And it calls to mind, um, I guess the clip I'll leave you with. Charlie Chaplin, it's most, the movie is most famous for its closing scene of a, of a very stirring speech that Charlie Chaplin gives, but he made a movie in the 1930s called The Great Dictator. And it is a, a satire of Hitler, whose Nazi army had not yet invaded Poland. And he depicts Hitler as this bumbling fool, a lot like Castro, just a blowhard who won't shut up. And in the course of the movie, I think it's a barber. Charlie Chaplin's tramp character is a, is a barber who who happens to bear a striking resemblance to the Fuhrer, and they end up switching places. I don't remember the details, but I remember when I watched the DVD. It, it was it was released by a French company. I think they're called F2, and there was a documentary in the special features. There are two talking heads here uh, that are noteworthy. One is the Austrian historian. I'm, I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly. Gitta Sereni, and the other is uh, the science fiction writer Ray Bradbury, and they're talking about how Charlie Chaplin sought to make Hitler look ridiculous before Hitler started moving militarily towards a conquest of the planet. So first, here is Gitta Sereni. This is the order in which they are, the two perspectives are presented back to back in the documentary. Here's Gitta Sereni talking about what Charlie Chaplin was trying to do with his satire of Hitler. This was a terrible thing. 
to make a comic film about him. There are two things which are very dangerous to, to associate uh, humor with people like that and to diminish them. Now here is Ray Bradbury talking about the same thing. Comedy is the greatest way to attack anything like a totalitarian regime. They can't stand it. And that gives the people a chance to laugh too. You can't go on being grim forever. There are people who came out of Buchenwald who came out because of their sense of humor. Courage doesn't do it, laughs do. I dig Ray Bradbury's perspective, but it does also sound a little too easy. It's a little cliche. It's a more enlivened, informed reiteration of a very simple idea that we've all held for a long time, which is that satire, as, as the English might say, has, has the ability to take the piss out of, a, out of a figure of dominating power. But I think Sereni has the more nuanced perspective. The idea that you're actually maybe doing something dangerous by making the world think that this very formidable, very dangerous person is neither of those things. I think you could say the same thing domestically about Donald Trump. Is he the most eloquent person in the world? No. Is he the most, you know, rational? Are his arguments well-reasoned? Do they serve anything but his vanity? No, no, no. And, on, and when you think about the last one, no, that doesn't mean that it isn't charismatic. Charisma and eloquence are often conflated. They're two very different things. You don't need to spend much time in the company of academics to realize you can be very eloquent and utterly devoid of charisma. Conversely, there are people who are not eloquent at all, but when they speak, people feel seen. They know how to modulate between humor and compassion and seriousness and levity. And I think uh, there was some linguist who did a thing a while ago where they, they rated sort of the grade level, the English grade level of each president's vocabulary on the basis of their written statements and transcripts of their public speeches. And I think it concluded that Trump uses like a third grade vocabulary. But I think most reasoning adults would look at how he wields that third grade vocabulary and say the way that he says it galvanizes people, triggers them into violent action. So I don't know, this feels like a volatile time to even be addressing this, but uh, yeah, this this was my takeaway from the, the most recent bout of uh, nonfiction reading. Hearing someone espouse a vile opinion in such plain language and, and conveying that opinion so succinctly and clearly, it's so weird, it's like a clarity that transcends clarity. It's a clarity so it is so clearly vile that any rational person is going to stop and think, okay, a respected adult didn't just say that. Whereas other people who are maybe more malleable, people who have a lot of rage that they, and they don't know what to do with it, will hear that message in its clarity and digest it immediately and maybe take it as some kind of authoritative insight. And so maybe the simplicity of the language is the danger, not only in insofar as it makes that message you know, endlessly disseminatable, endlessly accessible, but because its clarity will jar the people who know better. And it, and it almost, you can almost extrapolate from that with God knows how many historical examples that if you really, if you want to launch some kind of evil campaign and you want it to thrive for a little while, if you want to be able to disarm the opponents who would otherwise stand in the way of your evil campaign, make sure that your evil is very, very clear, right there on the surface, totally naked. Your clarity, your clarity will be, you know, a dinner bell 
to the people who feel that way or who have some, you know, a free-floating anger and they want some enemy to, to point it at. And it will stun the people who might otherwise, you know, apprehend you. Anyways, on that cheerful note, thank you so much for listening. Talk to you next time. Bye.